This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. That is a false fact. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com. You can also check me out on all the social media that the kids use to find out about our upcoming guests. But today, I'm joined once again by science writer, editor, and seriously, everybody, dear friend, Corey S. Powell. Hello, Corey. Bill, Bill, Bill. Greetings. Always good to be here. Always fun to be here. Bill, what is my favorite joke of yours? Oh, uh, okay. My old boss. Everybody has worked with for somebody that you thought was an idiot. So just so my old boss jokes, Corey, that's how I roll. Yep. Uh, uh, why do you bring that I, up? I love your old boss jokes. And when I think about your old boss, I picture him, you know, as a simple man. Often the jokes sort of present him almost as like a as a caveman or a Neanderthal type. And, uh, you know, with today's episode, I'm starting to wonder, you know, is that unfair? Are we not being compassionate enough? And I don't mean about your old boss, who clearly is a horrible, horrible person, but to the poor Neanderthals. Well, it wasn't horrible. He just, he just sucked as a boss. Exactly. He was probably not the, not the sharpest tool in the shed. So maybe we're being unfair to the, to the Neanderthals. I mean, we talk about them as if they were like, oh, they're dumb brutes. They just died out because we smarter humans came along and stole their lunch or whatever. But I know there's a lot more to the story. And I want to hear today from a Neanderthal advocate, or at least an expert, who can help set us straight. Bill, what can you yes, do? What can you yes, do for me? Corey, you're in the right place here on uh, broadcast podcast. Yes, our guest today is Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes. She is an archaeologist and author of the book Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art. Dr. Rebecca Rag Sykes, welcome to Science Rules. Uh, do I call you Rebecca? Yeah, that's good. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, it is we who must thank you. Okay, before we get started, you know, I Grew up in the U.S. I have an American accent and all that. Is it Neanderthal or Neanderthal? I am in the Tall camp because it's named after the Neanderthal, which Tal is German for valley. So I, I go with Tal. <laughs> and Neander is, uh, uh, we have the word new. You know, my name's Nye, Nia. Nia. I think it's, is that the new valley? It's the valley of the new man, which you could not have a more serendipitous place for the first sort of recognized other sort of human to have been found. <laughs> so the valley is not named after the remains. No. The remains are named after the valley, which just serendipitously happens to be named the Valley of the New Man. Yeah, it's named after um, a composer called uh, Joachim Neander, um, who actually came from a family that changed their name from Neumann, but it means the same thing, New Man. So yeah, it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> so I feel kindred with the neanderthals because my name is new uh roughly new and dangerous all right how many of us had sex with neanderthals? <laughs> okay let's start let's start with the important bit <laughs> you knew the question was going to come up sooner or later so let's just, <laughs> well, let's everybody's just get talking it right about out of the way we are part neanderthal the neanderthal tribes interacted can we say interacted with yeah. the sapiens tribes it's a nice euphemism. Had... <laughs> what's the story 
Okay, did well, we have sex with Neanderthals? We absolutely did. Um, yeah, why would people want to know about Neanderthals? Well, because they're awesome and cool. Um, they are A-list hominins. And yes, we have known for a decade now that we certainly did interact, have admixture with Neanderthals, make babies with Neanderthals. Um, that actually was quite big news because... Um, for quite a long time, one of the major theories in human evolution was that Homo sapiens, so that's our um, species, our population, dispersed out of Africa and basically replaced the Neanderthals. And the question was, well, how? Was there interaction or did we just kind of arrive after they'd already gone? Um, but this ancient DNA research, which really um, sort of kicked off a decade ago, showed clearly that there had been interbreeding. And we now know. Uh, 10 years on, that that, that happened multiple times um, through over 200,000 years, probably. Um, so the whole story of who met who, when and what happened has got a lot more complicated. Where do I go to get Neanderthal DNA? Uh, bones and teeth. But in fact, we can actually amazingly get it from sediments now. Um, absolutely mad. Um, but that that is now happening, you know, science fiction level stuff. Um, but yeah, where do you go? Ideally, not somewhere hot or moist. You really need somewhere that is cold and dry so that the DNA doesn't degrade. So some of the highest um, coverage samples that we have come from Siberia, for example, from caves, which are cold, you know, all year round. Okay, blah, 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 blah. so we're Neanderthals cave guys and gals. They spent time in caves, not like um, we don't believe that they ever lived deep in cave systems, although they did visit them. Um, but they weren't sort of just hanging out in caves. They also spent a lot of their lives in the open uh, landscape um, and they were hunters and gatherers. And um, so their lives were very mobile. Um, we think probably that they didn't really spend more than a few weeks at a time at any place, um, but they revisited them. So the caves were sort of were kind of an opportunistic shelter. Um, I, I think they were known spots in the landscape. I think um, when they were being used, we can see in sites which have really high resolution archaeological uh, records where you basically have layers that build up nice and slowly with lots of sediment. So lots of different occupations don't get mixed and splurged together. When you can pick out those different occupations and date that nicely, you can see Neanderthals are there for a few centuries. They come and but they're coming back. They're going, they're coming back sometimes seasonally. You can see that from the the uh, different measures in the animal teeth that they're hunting. Um, and then they're gone again for a thousand years. So during the times when they visit caves, it does look as if it's like a regular part of the territory that they're within. So when you talk about Siberia and they came back and there was a thousand year gap between one uh, residency and another, how long ago was all this going on? Neanderthaling around Siberia. <laughs> Just Neanderthaling around. The time span that we're talking about for Neanderthals is that we can see them emerging as a distinctive population, basically in terms of their bodies, their anatomy, somewhere around 350,000 years ago. Um, they're already beginning to be genetically distinct, um, sort of by 430-ish, that's kind of proto-Neanderthals. Um, and then through that next 50,000 years, they really become um, distinctive. And then they are around in Eurasia until 40,000 years ago. So that's actually an enormous span of time. And yeah. That, that covers multiple phases of climate change as well. Right. And then, and then how long during that period were they overlapping with modern humans, with anatomically modern humans? Well, that's actually one of the things that's changed a lot recently. As I was saying earlier, you know, there were these ideas that maybe we we dispersed out of Africa and then replaced them. And that was all believed to happen quite late, sort of maybe somewhere between 50 and 40,000 years ago, when we see the last Neanderthal stuff, and, and then they just disappear from the record. You don't see their their bones or their archaeology anymore. But what has um, changed now is that as well as knowing that we did interbreed, uh, we have found remains of early Homo sapiens people in Eurasia a lot earlier than we used to believe. So now we can see, for example, there are uh, remains in the Near East, um, in Israel, probably 180,000 years ago. That's, you know, that's way older. Um, yeah. And off mm. over into um, Asia, um, 
at least by uh, 50,000, but it's got to be before that, really, because we can see what we believe is Homo sapiens people in Australia by 60 to 65,000 years ago. So that span of time over which we were dispersing out of Africa, going into Eurasia and potentially having contact with Neanderthals is much, much bigger. And that fits with what we see from that DNA, um, which tells us that the interbreeding itself was going on over this huge span of time. So I'd love to paint a, paint a picture of that world for us. There's a period of something, maybe even 100,000 years, when there are two different human species hanging out and interacting with each other. They're the Neanderthals and these anatomically modern humans. What's going on? The other thing I want to know, as you describe this world, how many, it wasn't millions, how many people were crossing paths? Yeah, certainly, certainly not not millions. We don't think at any point in time there were um, more than 20,000 Neanderthals in existence, possibly less. Um, and I would say it's likely the same for Homo sapiens outside Africa. And so these tribes were wandering around Eurasia interacting. Well, yeah. And it's not just Neanderthals and us. That's the other thing, you know, is that it is actually more than two. If you look over Eurasia and Africa, then there are at least sort of six different kinds of hominins around at that point. And it's only actually the last 40, 50,000 years when it's just been shrinking and shrinking. And then by 40,000 years, as far as we know, it's just us. But what was the world like then? It to, it depends on when. When, when do you mean? Because um, over that whole span of time they're around, you're talking about multiple periods of massive climate change um, so what we call glacial so cold ice age type conditions that people are going to be associating with mammoths and things like this and then you also have warmer periods and um, what we call interglacial so we are in an interglacial right now and in fact they also experienced at least one period when it was even warmer than today so this is a forest world you also sort of you know, I say, well, when were they living in order to talk about the environment, but also where? You know, listeners might think Neanderthals, they're like super European. They're not really. If you look at the span, geographic span of where we find their sites, there's actually more of them, more coverage in Asia. Um, the, the Asian record is not as well known, but they certainly can't be called a European species. Um, and in that whole range, you know, from where I am in Wales, right across down into the Mediterranean, into Palestine and Israel, up into Central Asia and into Siberia. That's an enormous range of different kinds of landscapes. And we know that they were living on the coasts. You know, they were doing rock pooling, <laughs> basically. Um, they were living in grassland, mountains. And as I just said, during these warm periods, they were living in full-on forested environments alongside, you know, tropical-like creatures like hippos, hippos up in Yorkshire in England. <laughs> Uh, this only 20,000 of these people. Yeah, I mean, but hunter-gatherers in general, um, depending on the environment they're in, um, they can live at really low densities across the landscape. I mean, if you live in a really rich environment, um, like a tropical jungle where you have abundant fruit and, and the animals are all around you, it's easier to live, uh, you know, in slightly higher local numbers. Whereas if you look at, um, you know, classic hunter-gathering peoples uh, from the Arctic areas, you know, there's virtually nobody around when you look at the density across the landscape, but they are using the entire landscape. Um, so that is going to vary according to where the Neanderthals are and the climate. When you talk about using the whole landscape to, to forage for food and so on? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we don't actually know the real extent of Neanderthal territories. It's quite complicated to work that out. One of the best ways that we have is by essentially looking at the kind of stone that we find in one site and then tracing the geological sources of that and saying, okay, well, some of this red flint comes from 50 kilometers to the northwest. You're talking about stone that they used for tools? Yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. for, their, for their stone tool technology. And some of the black chert comes from 300 kilometers to the south. Um, so that's at least giving you some kind of scale. But the question is, you can't actually use that as like a, 
a, a boundary and just draw a simple line around around that site because those objects were probably carried over sort of trips between different places before they arrived there. So we don't think Neanderthals like lived at one place and then went out to quarry stuff and came back. It's a little bit more complicated. Okay, so I'm still trying to get a picture of of these these interactions. You have these you know, twenty thousand mm-hmm. ish uh, you know, Homo sapiens and twenty thousand ish Neanderthals operating over this very large territory over a very long period of time. The evidence you were talking about before of interbreeding, you were talking about genetic evidence. But what do we know of like how, you know how they were interacting? Do we know anything of what their relationships were like? Or you know, like um, you know, did they well, live together? Did they live together? <laughs> or did they just kind of like date casually? interact casually yeah that well those are some of the most hotly contested things in the whole of like neanderthal research basically so which side of it are you on well i mean clearly they did meet they were having babies and we can tell from the from the genetics that during the later periods of interbreeding which is the source of the material for the genetic legacy in living people that Later interbreeding was probably between um, Neanderthal men and Homo sapiens women. So those babies, the hybrid babies, would have been probably raised within Homo sapiens groups. Um, But we know that it goes the other way as well, because it looks as if some of the Neanderthal's Y chromosome, so that's the male uh, sex chromosome, or some or perhaps even all of it, was actually from Homo sapiens interactions before 200,000 years ago. So those had to be babies, male babies that were raised in the Neanderthal population. So what's going on changes through time clearly, but also like I said we should assume that there's going to be diversity. You know, we don't know what the social contexts were for this. And I think there's been a tendency to assume for quite a long time that it was all based in conflict. Because we like to think that we're great and special and awesome and we replaced the Andertals because we were, you know, a, a better version of humanity or whatever. Um, and therefore that there would be conflict, um, that we would come in and, you know, push them out and maybe some fighting, whatever. And as part of that, perhaps interactions, sex was coercive. But actually, there's no archaeological evidence that says that. Um, it could have been the other way around where you're talking about curiosity encounters that are you know um one-offs lucky encounters and people just you know just get get together by the fire um you know and but we just we just don't know that's the thing stick around for more science rules after this life is a highway and on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist, you'll want to invite everyone over. From book club to reality TV watch parties, even the in-laws. It smells... Amazing. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is infused with two times more essential oil versus regular Airwick Essential Mist for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Airwick Vibrant Essential Mist is perfectly portable and effortlessly easy. The way fragrance should be. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. Science Rules is back. What about their anatomy? I've read many times of different sources that if we saw a Neanderthal guy, gal walking down the street, he might look not that different from a U.S. football player. <laughs> and but you would you wouldn't really notice him if he were dressed or she were dressed the way modern people dress. So what about okay the classic stereotype? What about their eyebrows, their <laughs> their forehead, and all that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> when you talk about Neanderthals, a lot of people like to say. Oh, I know one. It's my wife's cousin, you know, that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, it's very close to the old boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. First off, there was no knuckle dragon. <laughs> um, they were absolutely as yeah, upright walking as us, you know. I mean, depending on how much, uh, you know, the average person is into human evolution, it's quite easy to to get the wrong idea about Neanderthals as some kind of, like, missing link between us and, you know, like 
super ancient ape relations like four million years ago. But really, Neanderthals are far more similar to us than to you know any sort of idea of chimpanzees or anything like that um so are they, there any no, would there have been noticeable differences right so if you had a nice a nice you know shaved showered dressed neanderthal walking down the street would you take a glance and say there's something different about that person yeah you would say that's a striking face <laughs> um yeah essentially they on average are a bit shorter they are stockier they don't have uh, their ribs are more flaring, um, so they have larger chests, um, and also their ribs don't sort of tuck in like ours do. So we they don't have a little waist; they look more like a barrel shaped uh, chest. But overall, the proportions are very similar. But yes, it's the the face I think would be really striking. Um, so they do have um, brow ridges, and that's actually accentuated because they don't have what we have. I mean, we are kind of like the weirdos in the hominin group because we have these really massive balloon heads we also have quite flat tucked in little faces that are really sort of tucked underneath our brows compared to most other hominins but it's the big head and so that means our foreheads are actually quite straight quite vertical um whereas neanderthals uh, heads were sort of they they look a bit more like an aerodynamic sort of shape they're kind of like sloped back a bit but also their faces are quite pulled forwards. And so from the nose and like the chin, it kind of looks a bit more snouty without sort of trying to imply something animal. Like they just had super impressive noses. The The front of the face is pulled forward slightly and you can see uh, even the impact of that because there's a little gap behind their their back tooth. Um, you know, the, the wisdom teeth that lots of people get pulled out, there's a little gap behind there. And that's because the whole of the front of their face has grown forward. So on our faces, we have bone absorbing cells. So that's why ours are kind of shrunken <laughs> underneath our faces, our, our uh, brows, whereas theirs had a lot more bone growth uh, cells. So that's where the difference comes from. Did they have longer arms? Would they have? The overall proportions are quite similar, but what we can see um sort of aside from how they grew and it's interesting that even the newborn babies show these features um but at the same time part of the reason that they are probably sort of quite stout and the bones are thick is because they had really intensive lifestyles enormous amounts of walking and running around the landscape but also loads of just really physical stuff with their arms so we can see like the the development um of muscles um in some cases uh, on like their dominant arm because most of them are right-handed like us um is of the level that you see in like professional sports players tennis players and things so what that actually was some of it might be you know you might assume oh it's spear throwing whatever but some of it's probably from working skins really repetitive um maybe even from napping uh use you know making the stone tools so there's really flaking intense... off stone tools yeah yeah, yeah really intense activity now how do you know they're right-handed Oh, well, that's really interesting. You can see it's in part from some of the stone cores, the sequence of flakes that were taken off. That shows you the direction that the core was being turned. And also we can see when they ate things, what we believe is that they did what we can see in some uh, recent and historic populations of humans where um, you put meat or some other food in your mouth, you hold it and then you slice it off in front of your mouth with a stone tool, like, you know, and you have your teeth. And sometimes... You get a little rah, scratch rah, rah, there. Your teeth, your, your teeth. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this is more delicate because you don't want to chop your lips off. Um, so as the direction of your piece of stone, your flake, chops off that meat, you get tiny, tiny scratches on the front of your teeth, only the front teeth, and they go diagonally. And it's that direction that shows you the handedness of the person. And it's basically, it looks to be about 90% right-handed, which is exactly like us. Uh, wh- what about their state of mind. I mean, everything you're describing is physiological, but what do we know about, did they think like we did? Did they have language like we did? I mean, you mentioned the words love and art in the title of your book. (laughs) What what do we know or what can we know about how, sort of how a Neanderthal thought or how a Neanderthal acted? Well, I think one of the the really exciting things is that alongside genetics, um, you know, pe- a lot of people understand that ancient genetics has really shifted our view about Neanderthals and our understanding. But actually, just archaeology itself as a discipline has 
has matured hugely over the past sort of 30 years or so. We now understand a lot better than we did 30, 40 years ago that you can't just sort of dig up and keep the nice bits. You actually have to dig really nice and slowly, pay attention to your sediments so you know the layers and also keep all the little bits because it turns out even all the dross that comes off a core of rock that you're trying to make a tool from all the stuff that people regard as waste, actually, that can be really informative about how that technology works. So were they making art? What were they doing? Okay, well, no, look, I'm saying it because it's important. You have to start with what people regard as boring, which is, oh, the stone tools. But actually, what we see in the stone tools is that they had a massively systematic mind. They were really flexible and they completely understood the material properties of what they worked with. So stone Uh, wood they were actually really good carpenters they used other things for tools like bone and shell so these are all things that have been claimed were like stuff that made us super special and kept us sort of separate from them turns out they actually could do an awful lot of that too and then when you look at the other stuff like the the more sexy oh art stuff you know that people want to hear about although using the word art is tricky because it conjures up really specific things in our minds you know that people think of galleries and art on the wall that's not what we're talking about but what we can say for neanderthals is that there seems to be like an aesthetic interest in materials so that's in unusual objects like fossils or geodes but also in using mineral pigments so natural color and applying that to surfaces And also making incisions on things. So cutting repeated lines into stuff that's nothing to do with butchery. And because we've understood as archaeologists, we have to be really careful how we dig our sites. We have to pay attention to everything. Now we can see this stuff because we're looking for it. And we are being a lot more you know, careful in the way that we actually analyse and, and go back to old collections. Well, this is happening. People sort of shoved stuff in museums 60 years ago and people have gone back and gone, oh, look. There's more. <laughs> so what changed? The DNA, I mean, I understand sequencing technology emerged, but what changed about the discipline of looking at a site where you found artifacts or something significant? Well, we record everything in 3D with lasers in our sites now. Um, as well as that, you have a massive range of archaeological science that has completely blossomed. So if you have a stone tool, for example, we can geologically source that using chemical analysis if we have to, to a particular place. If You, you can also look for residues on that tool of the kind of things that it was used to cut. You can look for distinctive polishes which tell you the same thing. This is all based on experimental samples that we have. Um, if you find a skull, um, you can look at the, you, I mean, you've got an entire range of stuff you can do to look at the anatomy and measure, you know, the heck out of it. But you can also look for DNA, obviously. You can scan like the teeth and look for the growth lines, which like, you know, every couple of days. So you can actually assess how quickly Neanderthals developed as children. Staying on the teeth, you can look at isotopes. Um, and if you have a, a milk tooth from a child, you can see when they were weaned. Did they encounter any really serious illnesses when they were young? We can see that too sometimes because there's sort of interruptions in the growth. Then you can look at like the dental calculus in between the teeth, you know, the grot that your hygienist removes. In that, we can find tiny tiny preserved bits of starches and some of those we can tell how they were cooked Um, and you can also look for dna in that too (laughs) so like anything that you find in a site now there is just the most astonishing range of techniques that we have to pull out that information what does a site look like it depends if you have a cave caves are really good for being places that preserve stuff um, because you know most of the time they're not subject to erosion unlike open air sites Um, So in a cave, depending on the kind of chemistry you have, you have a good chance at having bones there. You know, depending on the the different soils, you might have a nice, fine kind of windblown sediment that comes in. um, Or you might have what we call breccia, where there's the the cave earths have then become cemented by calcium deposits. And that's, you know, that's that's really hard to dig that stuff out. But if you look at open air sites, um, then we can see, for example, that we have butchery sites and kill sites, um, and those are preserved in different ways. And there's even um, a site in France where it looks as if Neanderthals are basically camped out near 
a river. And then after they left, there was just a flood in the river and it deposited loads and loads of very fine silt very quickly over that site, which means that it was preserved really well, including uh, an arrangement of what appeared to be post holes uh, in a ring about 10 metres across. Um, and that, we believe, is actually an outside structure, basically. It's a it's an outside camp, um, which had some kind of um, sort of barrier, maybe made of posts and skins. And ah. inside there, you can see preserved the different areas where they were sitting and working their flint. There's a hearth. There's an area at the back which had loads of rotted plant stuff, which possibly was a bedding area. So if we have sites with exceptional preservation, what we can say about how they actually lived is amazing. I'll say. Now, how did you get into this? Are you a, My family, uh, we are fond of jigsaw puzzles. Is that your kind of thing? Solving puzzles? I do actually like jigsaws, yeah. <laughs> Were you an obsessive kid? Were you a kid who like 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 no, you wanted no, no. to understand how the world works? How the you were looking for clues? What were I you? was one of those kids that um, likes you know nature and likes collecting stuff when they're out on walks and things. So my pockets would be full of little bits of shell and stones and twigs and stuff like that. Um, but I I was also I guess always drawn to um, the past. I do remember digging up my garden. I grew up in London um, and I have. Uh, distinct memories of trying to dig that up and I still have a pot shard that I found there so I started off on urban archaeology and then went back in time but I guess I have I have a calling to know about to try and understand how people's past experiences were and that includes Neanderthals so uh, you know people are obsessed with whodunit uh, style stories and uh, kids I can as a science educator tell you, kids are fascinated with forensics with uh, what happened at the scene of the crime was that your kind of thing yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's interesting because with Neanderthals, you have um, sort of the the investigative thing of, you know, what's going on in a particular site. And you can have that at different scales, like, you know, with one object, what does that object mean? Where did it come from? How is it used? What can it tell us? And then you have the whole the whole layer it came from. And then you have the whole site and then you join those sites up across the landscape. So you have these different scales of what we can say. And it is all kind of a detective story. There's an amazing site in Spain. I write about it a lot in the book um, called uh, Abric Romani, uh, which has fascinating um, archaeology because it has really unusual preservation where calcium deposits formed over this site every time the water table rose. And so basically you have incredible preserved layers of how Neanderthals lived there. All the spatial stuff is there, like where the hearths were, where the piles of animal stuff was. Um, and like you can see amazing stuff there. Like you can look at the micro layers in the hearths and see that they were burned at different temperatures over different periods. And at the back of the cave there, um, the hearths were arranged about a metre away from the wall. Um, and that matches what we see in a lot of ethnographic sites, because that's basically where people sleep right against the wall. And those hearths at the back of the cave look to have been like um, smouldering hearths. They weren't high temperature blazing things. They're like night hearths. And so you start to envision, you know, people lying down on the skins at night by these these smouldering embers. And, and that's, you know, that's real existence so it's very hard to not kind of try and envision that okay i i have to ask a question because this was a paper that i came across last week and i'm sure you've seen it about uh the neanderthal poop <laughs> yes fifty thousand year old neanderthal poop which i believe was on one of these hearths you could tell from the chemistry that it it had not been heated so it was like after the fire had gone out a neanderthal, a neanderthal had defecated on the hearth What's going on there? Do you do you know about this? Do you have an interpretation? Yeah, of this? yeah, that's from El Salt. This is another Spanish site, um, which I have in the book a lot because yeah, the hearths there are amazing. They have really good preservation. You can tell the different species of wood that they were burning and things like this. But yeah, with um with uh, the the feces evidence, it is really interesting. Um, and you know, if it would fit what we see from other kinds of evidence that Neanderthals were not sort of just you know slapdash in anything that they did, whether it was making tools or spears um, or keeping their living spaces clean, we can see that they cleaned the hearths out and dumped that material in basically like midden deposits, like rubbish dumps. Um, and so if they are cleaning up the site at the end and then putting the fires out with waste, well, that that's basically waste management. Um, and we can see that at different places. Oh, really? Okay. So here's the fundamental big question when I think about 
Neanderthals or cave people of any sort. How did we end up apparently on top? What's different about our face, our balloon heads, our <laughs> snouts? What happened with the uh, that sapiens ended up running the show, at least for now? Well, everything we see about Neanderthals, like I've said, they were very, very successful living hunter-gatherer lifestyles for an awfully long time. 300,000 years or something. Yeah, and over most of that time, our early Homo sapiens ancestors were also around and um, doing their own thing. And most of the time, the archaeology doesn't look very different. It's only really after about 100,000 years ago that you see differences that are beginning to be more striking. Um, so uh, there are some differences uh, in some of the stone tool technologies, like in South Africa, you start to see um, heat treatment of rock, for example, to basically make it more predictable in how you work it um but then there's like the the more symbolically interesting things like the fact that although neanderthals are also interested in pigments and colors and making lines on things it appears that the early homo sapiens people around eighty thousand years ago really started getting into that as well and in south africa again there's a site called blombos um where we have engravings on not only pieces of red pigment, um, so red ochre, but also on ostrich eggshell. And they are more formal than anything we see done by Neanderthals. So they are like lines and cross hashes within like a little frame of uh, other lines that they put around it. So it's really formalized. And Neanderthals did make repeated sequences of lines on things, but we don't see this graphic thing emerging. Um, so far so there does seem to be a difference there um, and you can kind of take this out into other aspects of sort of interest in shells and things like that so there's just more of it and it's kind of, it's like hyped up in us what they're doing art was part of sapiens life perhaps more than it was neanderthal life i think something is going on that's different i think that the the traditions the aesthetic traditions are more formalized and that's probably to do with being linked somehow to extended social networks and social identity. So the reason that we think that is um, because, I mean, it just makes sense, you know, like symbolic objects allow you to have a commonly understood culture and language that links many groups. So there was this idea for a long time that maybe that's what made us, you know, more resilient as a population. And in fact, the genetics, again, do actually suggest that because, Although there was never a lot of Neanderthals and there was never a lot of early Homo sapiens in Eurasia, what we see in the few cases that we actually have of DNA from early Homo sapiens people is that they appear to be coming from a more interlinked population. So Neanderthals, everybody was living in tiny groups day to day, moving around an awful lot, but the Neanderthals appear to be quite isolated um, so they might have had a few family groups over, you know, a region, many, many valleys. Um, but that was it. Whereas, how, how big was a family group? Oh, um, probably. I mean, we we have to guess based on the numbers of hearths that we see in high resolution layers, uh, and then match that with what we see in hunter gatherer ethnography and things. But basically, we don't think that they lived in groups bigger than sort of. 20 individuals and they probably separated off into little subgroups to go off on hunting trips and things and like we can see in some places there's like a layer and it's literally one half and a few tools and so you know a couple of people probably stayed there for a night so what gave sapiens the advantage is that we had cross cross tribal cross hearth interactions yeah is it because our, our tool making was a little finer our brains were a little bigger i think the the social networks is actually really key because if you if everybody's living you know very spread out across the landscape then something that goes wrong your herds don't arrive that can be a really big problem for you as a hunter gatherer whether you're a neanderthal or not but if you know that 200 kilometers away 300 kilometers away in another river system there are people who will recognize you and you can go over there and have access to their resources that could be the difference between making it and not. And if Neanderthals did not have that, it's kind of like a social insurance. If they didn't have that, then that could be the end of that local 
population. Is there any reason to think that, that our size and shape, our anatomy, had gave us this advantage, this ability to interact and have cross-cultural or cross-valley communication? Well, that's really interesting because it links, obviously, to language. Um, I, I was going to ask know, about pe- that, is what, we, yeah. you know, what we know about language. And yeah, when I mean, we make fun of cave people, we grunt. Yeah, no, I don't think that's um, fair to Neanderthals at all. The latest view of their anatomy um, is is that they probably could make roughly the same range of sounds as us. Some of the vowels may be a bit different, um, but sort of their control of of um, air in their lungs is not necessarily worse. Um, this, is, this, and, this is just based on anatomical studies of what you Yeah, can... this is just anatomical because we actually have the bones that support your voice box and we have, they're called hyoid. We have one of those for Neanderthals. And, you know, once you factor in the different sort of shape of the neck and all of that, you can model it really nicely, basically. And it comes out pretty much the same. So they don't have the handicaps that chimpanzees do that they just can't make a lot of the sounds we can. Well, all and, to say to the chimpanzee, careful what you wish for. You know, when you can make all these sounds, it doesn't mean you communicate any better. Next so, thing you know, they're making podcasts. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Is there any evidence of Neanderthal podcasts? <laughs> no. But speaking of their technology, you know, there's a stereotype of the cave guy in the bearskin. If they're in Eurasia at different times, they must have ways to keep warm in their hearths for sleeping and stuff. What did they wear? What were their tools? How did they roll? They have sewing machines? What happened? No, no, it's not the Flintstones. <laughs> what we believe is based on a lot of evidence, actually, that comes down to um, the way that animal bones are being cut. Uh, we can see the cut marks and the placement on how those bodies were taken apart. We know they're skinning things. Um, and we can see from particular polishes on stone tools that they were working skins to get all the fresh you know, meat and um, membranes off. But sometimes we can also see tools where they're working dried skins, basically, you know, hides that have been stored. But there is a really interesting new find from a French site, um, which is a really tiny piece of what appears to be like a three ply piece of twine. So a little tiny, it's only like six millimeters long, very, very fine. Um, and it's three little pieces that are twisted one way and then all three twisted together the opposite way, exactly like, you know, the stuff that you would have in a scarf or whatever. Um, and that has been made uh, from some kind of conifer tree, possibly the bark or the roots. Um, so that is very much like... Um, it's uh, of- ancient rayon. Well, yeah, it's it's exactly like it would be similar to what we see in a lot of indigenous North American cultures where they do use spruce roots and things like this. um, And you can strip it down and get the fibers out. So that's just one piece. And it was preserved on a piece of uh, on a stone flake where there was like a natural mineral film over it. And the same sites had like, you know, fish scales and, and rabbit hair and things like this. So it's a really amazing site. It does link to another to a German find where there's another stone tool with a little brown organic scrap on it that turned out to be full of oak tannins. And oak tannin is a perfect thing for tanning leather. Um, so, you know, you get all these tiny little unique finds, but when you start to piece the picture together overall, um, you know, you get this, this view that Neanderthals knew a lot about plants as materials as well. So maybe they did use plant textile. Science Rules will be right back. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You're listening to Science Rules. Is there evidence of things being assembled? Let me see. How would I describe this? Yes, composite like, technology. Uh, yeah, compo- this. That's what I meant, Corey. Yes. Composite technology. <laughs> yes, there definitely is. And this comes back to the plant knowledge, actually, because um, we know that Neanderthals were putting things together because we can find the glue that they did it with, um, so the adhesives. Um, we can see on some flakes um, some kind of like polish that might be to do with bindings, um, you know, like string, which probably plant fiber. But on other things, 
we can see um, residues um, from adhesive substances. Um, one is really well known, which is birch tar. Um, and that's super interesting because you have to actually cook that out of birch bark. You have to have it in a fire. You can't like let the fire get too hot or it just chars. Um, and it distills out into like this gloopy black stuff. Um, and it's an extremely good adhesive for multi-part objects, basically. Um, so they knew how to do that. And um, we've got finds going back um, over 200,000 years in Italy, then later in Germany, about 80,000. And um, from the bottom of the North Sea, <laughs> because, of course, at, at various points, that was land um, that they were walking around on. And there's a find from there, which is about 55,000 years ago. So that seems to be a technology that's quite widespread through time. I don't know if it's, you know, whether that's like a persistent culture or if it was reinvented many times. We don't know. But that's not the only one. There's also a, a new find from Italy, which shows that they were actually making a recipe for this adhesive. Um, and instead of birch tar, they're using pine resin, but mixing it with beeswax. And so oh, pine that resin... old trick. That, you, <laughs> you knew that, yeah. <laughs> well, so, but you've made reference to hearths and mm -hmm. recipes. And Did they have cooking pots or uh, did they have eating utensils? How would we know that? Um, there is no evidence at all that Neanderthals had any kind of ceramic technology, so like pots made from clay. Um, that appears much, much later. So the oldest evidence for that's like 20,000 years ago from Asia. Um, so a long time after Neanderthals. But, um, you know, we do think, aside from sort of just roasting joints on a fire, there's one piece of evidence that they did use uh, that they did boil things which comes um like i mentioned earlier um from looking at the dental calculus there is a, a tiny sort of some starch grains from in between the teeth of a neanderthal which appear to have been uh, heated so like you know we have big experimental collections where we we try all this out and then we can see what it looks like under the microscope and if you look at the stuff from this dental calculus it looks like starch grains that have been uh, boiled rather than like dry parched or heated next to a fire or something like that so that is one tiny little piece of evidence how would they do it well you can actually use the insides of skulls. That's one way. There's lots of indigenous cultures that will cook uh, inside boxes, birch boxes, actually birch tar. But also you can actually cook inside animal skins over a fire or stomachs as long as the level of the liquid inside it stays higher than the flames and it won't burn. So here's the thing. You know, nowadays, and by that I mean even a century ago, when the going got tough looking for protein, humans, modern humans, end up eating each other. Did <laughs> Neanderthals, were they you're thinking a little? You're thinking a little Donner Party there? <laughs> well, is one of the myths, or is it a myth about Neanderthals that they would resort to cannibalism when they needed to? Well, it's not a myth that there are um, sites where we see consumption of bodies. But what might be a myth is why they did that. So, like... We tend to assume that um, because we're in a Western society and the way that you treat the dead is really specific, um, you do not eat them, basically. <laughs> that is not the only opinion on what eating a person means. And if you look at other cultures, it can be something very different. It can have social meanings um, and it doesn't necessarily imply those things. So in the sites where we see it for Neanderthals, First of all, like there is a whole debate about did they bury their bodies in a way that looks a lot more like what Western ideas about burials should look like, you know, a whole body in the ground. That's been debated an awful long time. And it does look now with modern cases and modern reanalysis that they did sometimes do that. But alongside that, we have increasing evidence that they also sometimes took bodies apart. So butchered them very thoroughly um, and sometimes consumed them. And also, quite often, there's no clear indication that they were necessarily actually starving. There are animals in the sites. Um, they don't look necessarily less uh, healthy than other Neanderthals. So there's no reason to believe it has to be about that. Personally, I think that if we look, for example, at how our closest relations, chimpanzees and bonobos, they also sometimes will consume bodies. But in them, it seems to be... Um, linked to emotional reactions and there's definite evidence for example 
that chimpanzee bonobo females will carry the bodies around of of their babies who have died uh, for days, sometimes for weeks. Um, And that's being quite well understood now as a reaction to basically the trauma of, of that change in the baby being alive and then it's not and they can't let go of that and they don't know how to process that. But also when an adult dies um, as well, you see the same thing. If it's a sudden death, the group gathers around and they are intensely focused on the body. Initially, they try and see, you know, if it's actually going to come back to life or if it's just ill or whatever. But then after that, they start to do other things. They start to like touch it and pull it and and groom it even. Um, And there's one really amazing case where, because chimpanzees do use natural toothpicks to clean their teeth out, um, where like the friend of one of these chimps that had died uh, was seen to try and like clean their teeth out. And so for me, at least, I don't think it's that much of a stretch. If we imagine that what Neanderthals did all the time with the bodies of the animals they ate was they took them apart with their stone tools. So if you have the body of a loved one and, and you're all gathered around, well, maybe it's not so weird to behave as you normally behave and you take it apart. And it's our ideas that eating something is some kind of awful thing to happen, but perhaps it made sense to them and it was just part of a grieving process. I mean, all this discussion of of bodies is making me wonder, what would happen if you found, say, an, an intact mummified Neanderthal or or like, a, you know, an ice mummy, like, 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 let's say the Iceman, what kinds of questions could you answer that you, that you haven't been able to answer so far? Because it would seem to me that could be utterly transformative. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Ertzi, this Copper Age uh, person, um, you know, listeners probably remember that that was from the Alps when that was found, um, this body up on on a glacier. Oh, man, it's just so cool. I guess literally cool. Yeah, and he exactly. had he had a violent death apparently. Well, yeah, um, but I mean, like that that got me into sort of archaeology. I was quite young when that um, came out. It was absolutely fascinating. And if we found a Neanderthal, I mean, it would come from probably Siberia. You know, thanks to climate change, there's a lot of um, melting permafrost, and there are animals coming out. People have seen in the news there's wolves, things like this. Even cave lion cub recently, and those are species which are quite rare in caves. So there's no reason why we might not find a Neanderthal. But if we did, I think two things would be absolutely mind-blowing. One would be to actually see their faces because we've spent 160 years imagining what they really looked like, you know, and we we can do amazing reconstructions and stuff and, you know, um, CSI with their skulls and all this, but actually seeing their face would be incredible. But as an archaeologist... Um, I would want to know, you know, what did they have on them? What was their everyday gear? What did they use to carry stuff in? We don't even know what their bags looked like. They had to have had some kind of bag. What kind of hats? Did they have cool (laughs) hats? Yeah, did they have hoods? I don't know. (laughs) Um, All of it. So, you know, and that's the thing about Ertzi. He did have a bag. He had stuff and we saw that he carried around like fungi and stuff, which has been interpreted as like a little medical kit for himself. So what all of those things that we didn't even expect to to see, there would be those kind of things for Neanderthals. There would be unknown unknowns that we can't even imagine. It's been speculated. Okay, now we have the internet. Now we get 16 emails a day. Now we have Twitter. We have things. We have Instagram. We go to the stuff. We got TikTok. We have this, and there's all the stuff. There's all this input all the time. This coming into you got to process. Bill, you're okay. It's been you're okay. I'm fine. <laughs> you're okay. You're okay. Okay, you're good. Go back to 50,000 years. You'll be fine. <laughs> so it's been speculated that Neanderthals and their contemporaries had free time, probably before crossword puzzles, but that they would have time to themselves. And boy, those were the good old days when you were just hunting, gathering, scavenging, you know, tanning a hide with a stone tool. Those were the days, really. Is that true? Or were they just as anxious and nutty as the rest of us? I think in general, most hunter-gatherers do have a reasonable amount of leisure time, but it does depend on the kind of environment you live in. If you live in a really rich environment and you're surrounded by food, it's easy to kind of chill because you can just go and pick some nice nuts. But if you live, you know, in northern latitudes on the steppe, you might have quite a hard life. And, you know, at the end of your day when you've been out finding food and stuff, well, you got to start working the skins to replace your children's clothes or, or whatever. Or you've got to go out and get some more wood. So I think it's going to be variable. But I do think probably there were some times when people would be chilling out by the fire in the evening and looking up at the stars, maybe. 
Why did the Neanderthals go out of business? Why did they disappear? What's the deal? Well, this is this is the million dollar question, isn't it? And you know, some some people are, are like, "Oh, in your book, you didn't tell us why." And it's like, well, we don't know. Climate might have been part of it. This period after fifty thousand years ago until about forty thousand years ago, it was definitely getting colder, but it was also really quite unpredictable. Um, there could be really significant changes in climate um, over one person's lifetime. Um, you know, so you would expect herds that used to be there are gone. Um, so that could make a difference. But on the other hand, they had actually been through things like that before. So it wasn't un- it wasn't novel for them as a species. People used to say, well, clearly it was us because we turn up 40,000 right. and then they're gone. But now we know that's not the case. We know that actually Homo sapiens were in Eurasia for an enormously long time before that. And it appears that we didn't get into Europe until very close to the end. Um, so why is that? Why were the End of the Neanderthals. Yeah, so we were like in the Near East, we were off in Asia, up in Siberia, but not in Europe. So were they keeping us out? Actually, is that pointing to them being successful? So it does seem that something changed after that time um, that meant that we became more successful um, and they went. Although there's interbreeding very, very late, we can see that there's a jaw from Romania, Homo sapiens uh, man who had a Neanderthal ancestor um, around 200 years before he lived, um, only around 40,000 years ago. So that's right at the end. There's still interbreeding happening. So what did those last days of the Neanderthal look like? Was there a place of a last stand? Were they isolated populations? Was there one guy who was like, oh my God, I'm the last Neanderthal? Technically, there had to be one last one, but I don't think we can sort of say necessarily, oh, the last Neanderthals were in Spain or something. I think it's going to be more piecemeal than that. I think they're going to be lots of little shrinking territories all over the place. Um, So it's going to be quite a long process. Um, But technology might be part of it as well. If there are only 20,000 of you, with respect. It doesn't take much, yeah. Stuff could happen uh, unexpectedly. Things could happen in multiple locations unexpectedly and over the course of a couple centuries. There'd be trouble. Corey, Corey, Corey. I, I, I hear something. That's not a sound produced by an editor. It sounds like thunder. Oh, I get it. It's the lightning round. It's the lightning round. What is the coolest object you found in your field research? pieces of stuff that neanderthals were making very close to when they went extinct from a site in france what a piece of what stuff a stone sorry (laughs) pieces of stone and the animal bones yeah what is the biggest thing we don't know about neanderthals i'd like to know more about what they did with plants there's so many little hints and we're just getting tiny windows into that all right uh is there a popular movie (laughs) is there a popular movie that comes close to depicting Neanderthals accurately. No, but there is a really good book that people might want to check out by Claire Cameron called The Last Neanderthal, which is a great novel. Oh, I thought it would be Kindred Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, oh, and well, Art. That's, that's, yeah. that's not a novel. That, that's, that's <laughs> even science, if, even so. if it reads like one, Page Turner. Well, that's true. I do have the little introductory bits at the chapters, don't I? Yeah. All right. So hang on. Uh, is there a bad movie? Kind of most of them. <laughs> If you were not doing archaeology, what would you do? I've managed to combine my two passions, so I'm I'm writing now, so that's what I'd probably do. Or maybe art. If you could pick, do you want to live your life as a sapiens or as a Neanderthal? As a sapiens. Why is that? Oh my gosh, because just health reasons, you'd probably die. Whether you were a sapiens or a Neanderthal 50,000 years ago, you, your chances would not be awesome <laughs> okay but what if it were fifty thousand years ago which would you choose oh um I, I think it would be equal i think i'd like to try both that's a politic answer right there this is cool hey, we're not gonna lose a, even a single neanderthal listener with that answer uh, <laughs> uh this has just been great our guest today has been archaeologist rebecca rag sykes her book is kindred neanderthal life love death and art we learned that we pronounce it Neanderthal. Remember, when it comes to understanding our long-lost relatives, Corey, science rules. Now, if you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us know what you want to hear about. So thank you. 
Be sure to look at my socials for more information on our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, give us a call at 201-472-0785 or submit a question to askbillnye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and Corey S. Powell, the very same guy. Hey. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Martiran is our executive producer and at Stitcher. Science Rules. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.